You're listening to the Podcast Insider, Episode 4. What's up, everyone? Devin here, executive producer with Devenio Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Podcast Insider. Now it's November, it's getting a little bit colder out, and I'm actually skipping town and heading down to Florida to go to Star Wars land. Yes, I'm admittedly a Star Wars nerd. But before I head out to a galaxy far, far away, I'm super excited to bring to you this next episode of the Podcast Insider because it's a topic that I don't really feel is talked about or top of mind for a lot of people. People jump into podcasting and they just let their personality shine, which is fine. That's a great way to go about things. And that's part of what makes podcasting amazing. But I really thought it would be interesting to take a closer look at what makes a really great podcast host and some of the things that you can do to become a better podcast host. Now, who better to break this down with me than Maurice Cherry, who is a creative strategist at Glitch, but he's most well known for his award-winning podcast series, The Revision Path Podcast. Now on the podcast, he spotlights some of the best black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers from all over the world across all different industries. And he really dives into the stories and the experiences and the creative inspirations from a lot of these people. And he's won a number of awards for his podcast, including the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary. Uh, And he was even the first podcast ever to be featured as a permanent addition to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is incredible. Now, Maurice has been podcasting for a really long time. He's got a ton of experience under his belt and his story is super fascinating. So I really enjoyed hearing how he uh, grew the Revision Path podcast and got it on the map, not only just for the design industry, but just culturally in general. Now, Maurice is going to dive into uh, what it really takes to become a great podcast host and a great interviewer including how to source guests for your show and vet them out. Because let's be honest, not everybody is going to be a good fit for your audience and for your show. We'll talk about how to prepare for your interview and really make your guests feel comfortable while they're on the show. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about whether or not you need a co-host. Is it really necessary to have a co-host on your show? Can you handle the load by yourself? When when does it become necessary to have a uh, co-host, if at all? So let's not waste any more time. Maurice has a lot to say about this subject, so let's dive right in. All right, so Maurice, you've uh, you've done quite a lot in in a short amount of time. Uh, I was you know reading your history, and it was really incredible to see you know, all the different things that you're involved in and not only just involved in, but at a high level. I mean, you're, you're winning awards for your podcast, you know, you've just done a lot in a short amount of time. So what specifically to revision path with all this going on, what, what really inspired you to start the podcast and what makes you keep going? What makes you get up in the morning and want to keep doing this? Sure. That's a good question. So the original idea for revision path started actually in 2006. Uh, At the time, I was uh, putting together an event that I created called the Black Weblog Awards, which was an internet event that showcased Black bloggers and podcasters and video bloggers, you know, kind of doing their thing and basically just giving them recognition. And I had the idea to do it then because I was a working designer at the time. And I had friends of mine who were doing, you know, really great work that just weren't getting any level of recognition. Uh, But unfortunately, I didn't have the time to really sink into developing that idea any further. I was working full time. I was in grad school full time and I was doing the Black Weblog Award basically during my summers. So I really didn't have any free time to try to go into something else. I didn't really fully pursue sort of starting Revision Path until about seven years later um, in 2013 at that point in time, I had quit my job. I had started my own studio and I had just reached the five year mark in my studio. And I figured, well, at this point, I'm pretty established. Uh, things are going well with the studio. Let me try to put some, you know, some I put some energy into this idea. And so that's kind of where Revision Path sort of started. 
Uh, initially, what it was was just a series of long form interviews, maybe about, you know, 1500 to 2000 words. And then that eventually evolved into a podcast because someone who was reading the interviews was visiting from Chicago and she wanted to be on Revision Path, but wanted to actually record a podcast because she was a podcaster. And now this was 2013. I didn't have any gear or anything like that. So we actually met at a local restaurant and I recorded it hmm. on my mobile phone, just sitting on the on the dining table. Uh, right. Terrible audio. I still keep it up <laughs> because I want people to kind of see what the progression has been. But that's sort of where the podcast began. And then eventually I started to offer just doing the podcast as an option to people who I reached out to. I would usually ask if they want to do a longer interview or if they want to do a podcast. Some wanted to do the podcast. And then I officially sort of launched the podcast revision path in 2014, in March of 2014. But uh, yeah, I've had the idea for a while. And really, I think what keeps me going is that it's always still a very new and fresh thing. Like it's almost seven years now since uh, since I really started it. And it's still every interview, I still come to it excited and energized and just ready to learn more about these people. That's fantastic. And, you know, you really got the notion for the podcast, it seems, early on, 2006, I think you said you were kind of doing some blogs. During that time, was a podcast in the cards? Was essentially, uh, were, were you thinking podcast at that point in time or did it start off sort of as a written endeavor? And, and then years down the line, uh, 2013, I think you said, evolve into a podcast. Oh, no. In 2006, I had no idea what it was going to be. Now, I knew what podcasts were back then. Right. I actually was podcasting back then. I had my own kind of just personal podcast that I recorded with a little like $10 microphone I bought from CVS or something. Sure. Uh, I was also involved in the local podcasting community in Atlanta. We had podcasting conferences here. Um, I don't know if the PodCamp conferences still are a thing, but it was back then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was still, you know, kind of active in the podcasting scene and I knew about it. I was listening to podcasts mostly from NPR. Yep. Uh, so I, I knew what they were, but I never thought like, oh, I could do this and call it Revision Path. I just had the idea, but didn't know what form it would take. Pretty cool. Now, and I think it's important to note here is, you know, 2006, that was, I don't want to say the beginning of, but it was, podcasting was not what it was today. I mean, podcasting is, especially within the last two years, has really exploded. But back in 2006, you said podcast to somebody, they really had no clue. So it was a really niche sort of community. And uh, it's really cool that you've been a part of that and have grown with it, uh, you know, ahead of the curve. Yeah. So I, I am curious too, you know, with graphic design, web design, things like that, it's a really visual format. And I, I just find it interesting that you, you gravitated towards podcasting, which obviously is an audio format. It, it seems like quite a challenge to, to translate a, a very visual format and talk about very visual things without some sort of example there that are, that's tangible that people can see. So uh, what kind of challenges have you seen doing that? And how have you attacked those challenges and overcome them? Well, I think the primary challenge is one that like all podcasts face, which is that you have to get people to listen. Uh, regardless, I think of the subject matter, just making sure that people are listening to the episode or listening to it all the way through is kind of just the, the primary challenge. The subject matter, I think at this point in time is I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but I think now there are podcasts for everything out there. Whatever it is that you're interested in, there is more than likely a podcast out there that will suit you. So often uh, the content finds its audience and not the other way around. So to that end, it's not really that big of a jump uh, for something that is primarily a visual medium. I think also just because designers are always listening to music. They always have headphones in yeah. because they don't want to be bothered. They want to be in the zone. They want to be, you know, in that state of flow. Yep. And whether it's a podcast or, you know, a playlist or a mixtape or what have you, uh, audio tends to be a format that designers tend to gravitate towards. I think cause we're just looking at stuff all the time and our eyes get tired. You need a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And and people are definitely listening. I mean, you in 2015, you've won the uh, the most inspiring design podcast. 
2018, you were awarded the Stephen Heller Prize for cultural commentary. I mean, uh, people are definitely taking notice throughout the years, and that's obvious. I mean, you've been doing this a long time. Uh, You were even the first podcast to be added to the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. That is super cool. How does that feel? Uh, That's, you know, it's interesting. That's something which I'm still kind of I don't want to say grappling with, but it's something that I'm still sort of realizing the gravity of. It hasn't sunk in yet. (laughs) No, it it hasn't sunk in yet because I think it came at a time where there were like a lot of things just going on at work. And so once this happened, this kind of all just got swept up in the mix. Don't get me wrong. I do realize the gravity of, you know, being the first podcast like that. But I think because it's not something that is say entertainment focused or comedy or true crime or something right uh for a lot of people it still kind of slips under the radar so it's not not an accolade that goes to my head in any sort of way um if anything i think what it does is it validates for me a lot of the hard work that i've put into this show to continually make it something that is new and exciting and fresh and continues to kind of break boundaries and also continues to uplift and inspire people that's fantastic. You use it as motivation. So uh, would you say that's the most proud uh, moment you've had? What, what Out of all these accolades that the show has accumulated over the years, what would you say is your, your most proud moment and the thing that you've done with the show that you're most proud of? It doesn't necessarily have to be an award. It could just be something that you've done on the podcast that you, you really are proud of. Oh, oh, wow. That's, I think I've had many of these moments. Um, <laughs> I probably for me, the biggest moment was when I recorded episode 234 with Eddie Opara. Um, Eddie Opara is someone who is well known in the design industry. He's one of the sort of few black designers that is, I guess, at the top when people think of top designers in the industry. He's one of the few that's in that rare air up there. And I have been trying to get him on the show for years. I mean, to mm-hmm. the point where I I don't want to say stalking, but I was uh, <laughs> surveilling people that he worked with to try to find a way to kind of work my way in and get an introduction to see if he had even heard of the show. Um, I even had his best friend on the show and wow. was like, yeah, can you let him know that <laughs> I would really love his best friend happens to be a designer by the like a great designer in his own accord. So I don't yeah. want this to seem like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you're I trying to, him just as a as a step. Yeah, his best friend. is like, <laughs> Right. His friend is episode 125. So like this, this is years between this happening. But um, I tried a lot of ways just to make sure that I was in his orbit, yep. you know, And then it finally happened and we recorded the interview and it was a really great interview. We actually had to do it twice because of scheduling, uh, but it ended up being a really great interview. And for me, that was like my my white whale, so to speak. Like once I (laughs) once I recorded that interview and it went out in the world, I was like, no one can tell me anything at this point, (laughs) because to me, that was my to me, that was a, a really big achievement of the show was to have him on. That's great. And, uh, you know, that, that comes down to just persistence and, and sticking with it. And, and that's something that can mean the difference between a successful podcast and an unsuccessful podcast. We see podcasters every day. They just don't understand that this is a commitment. So they get in, they put, put an episode or two out. They see that it's way more work than, than they originally thought. And, and those podcasts just sort of die out. But this is an example here where you set some goals for yourself and really stuck with it and and achieved those goals. So that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, I think that some of what you're talking about here in in tracking down your white whale, so to speak, kind of (laughs) comes down to what our discussion is going to be here today uh, with this episode, which is how to be a great podcast host and how to really conduct these interviews that are valuable to your listeners. And, and, you know, maybe it goes a little bit beyond interviewing really what makes a great podcast host that will make people want to tune in and listen to your show. Now, again, you've been doing this a very long time. You have the accolades. It's something that I'm very excited to talk to you about because of that. Um, So with that in mind, when thinking about what it takes to really become a great podcast host, What are some of the keys to that? Would you say maybe there's three things, if we could break it down to three things that are absolutely essential to 
taking your podcast to the next level as an, uh, a personality, as a host, what would you say those are? Well, I think the very first thing, honestly, is just being prepared for your guests. For Revision Path, I would say about 99% of the people who have come on the show have never done an interview, have never done a podcast. So it's up to me as the guest to be prepared to, you know, know who they are, get them comfortable to talk to me. And then really just have them open up. So I'll do research, but what I actually try to do is not go into interviews with questions. Uh, My Mm. goal is that I want to learn about the guest the same time that the listener is learning about the guest. So that way it sort of unfolds in a very organic sort of way. I go in with talking points. So when guests book for the show, we have a whole automated booking system. When they book for the show, I have their photo, their bio, um, or whatever information they decide to provide, social media, et cetera. And I'll do, you know, a little Googling. I usually spend about 30 minutes to an hour kind of researching a guest, just seeing if they've done any other interviews or where else they've worked or, you know, where they went to school, where they grew up, that sort of thing. And in my mind, I try to craft a narrative of kind of who this person was, where they came from, Then they went to school here, then they got this job and then this job or they did this project or what have you. And I try to piece that together as the conversation is going along. I I really don't try to come in with just preset questions. Well, I do have two preset questions for every episode, so that's not totally true. The first question I'll ask is like, tell us who you are and what you do. The last question is, where can our audience find you online? And then everything in the middle, I really just go where the conversation goes. Sometimes we'll do a departure and talk about television or we'll talk about uh, me being here in Atlanta. We'll talk about just any number of things. And I find that those little side detours in the conversation, just going sort of off script kind of help to make them more comfortable Yeah, because then I can bring it back into the main topic and they feel sort of refreshed almost like, Ooh, okay. I sort of shook off whatever nervousness was. And then now I'm able to go in and continue the conversation. But a lot of that is really just knowing the guests. Yeah. Just having that prep work. Like I said, I go in without questions. I just try to have general talking points. And then I'll also cover those with the guests before we even start recording. So that way nothing is a huge surprise. For sure. Yeah. In terms of like, oh, we can't talk about this job or we can't talk about um, this certain experience or something like that. One thing that I found with guests who maybe have done a lot of interviews is that I will use whatever answers they've given and then go deeper. So say they've done an interview and they already have answered about, oh, what was your biggest motivation? I'll bring up, oh, well, you said in blah, blah, blah interview that da, 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 da was your biggest motivation. Now that you're older or you're a parent or what have you, has that changed? Yeah, that's great. Or, you know, so I try to take that and make them just kind of go a little deeper, go a little further to kind of give some more introspection for the guests. But now is that, is that something that you, you do uh, as part of your research phase? Are you listening to maybe previous, previous interviews? If he's uh, he or she has done uh, another podcast episode in the past, are you listening to this stuff as part of your research and taking notes and things like that? Oh no, I don't have time for that. <laughs> if I, I if it's a if it's an interview I can read, I'd prefer that much more than something I have to listen right, to. Right. Mainly because I'm already listening to a ton of podcasts sure. just on my own personal time. Yep. And if I feel like if I'm doing it for the show, it's like homework yeah. or something. Um I like to go in fresh and I think because I've done this for so long, I'm able to read people very quickly. Yeah. And I can tell when someone is nervous. I can tell when someone is ready to get into it. I can tell when someone is clearly holding back or they're preparing the answers in their head as they speak. I can pick up on all of that as the conversation happens. So I just try to go where it goes. It's sort of like you're riding the wave a yeah, little bit yeah. to kind of use a surfing metaphor. Like I, I, that's how I'm doing with the conversation. Well, what, yeah. I, what I love about that, so we have preparation as, as a definite key to success in, in becoming a great podcast host. Mm-hmm. But something else I'm actually pulling from that now, which I love, is you are a conduit of your audience because you're you're not preparing ahead of time. You're asking questions that you're curious about. And ultimately, these are the questions that your your listeners are going to want to find out. If they were sitting there at the table with your guest, these are some of the questions that they probably would be ans- uh, asking 
and yeah. you're you're providing that conduit for them, which I would, I mean, I didn't think about this ahead of time. This is one of those off the cuff things that we're just talking about now, but that I would also say is a great key to success to becoming a great podcast host is, you know, just being a representation of your listeners. Yeah. I try to, you know, like I said, make sure that I'm structuring my questions in a way that is organic from something that they've already said. So one thing that I also do is I take notes during the interview. I have my, uh, my iPad pro in front of me and I'm taking notes as they're saying something. So they may say something interesting just in a longer you know, response. I'll write that down, circle it. Then I'll make sure to come back to it. I'll give you an example. Yeah. I interviewed someone today who works for Adobe. Okay. And now any designer out there knows Adobe because Adobe created Photoshop, Illustrator, many of the sort of industry standard graphic design tools. For sure. However, Adobe also has a very contentious relationship in the design industry because of their pricing model, because of a, a number of other things, customer data breaches, et cetera. Yep. So I made sure to bring that up in the interview because what this person does is they do a lot of outreach to designers. And I asked, well, what's the challenge of that? Because there are a lot of designers that really don't like Adobe. They don't like the products. They don't like the pricing model. Is it difficult to try to reach out to them when you say you're from Adobe, when I say within the past maybe five to seven years, there's been this sort of strong anti-Adobe sentiment from the design industry. And right. they've, you know, they've kind of responded in turn with making like anti-Adobe tools or <laughs> anti-Adobe services or anti-Adobe events kind of things right. you know, to kind of reach out to other parts of the industry. So that's not something that you can really just, I think, come up with. Sure. I mean, for me, that's just me knowing knowledge of the industry to know that that's a thing. But if I didn't know that research kind of going into it, then it would have been a bit kind of awkward if I sort of just dropped it as a question, especially if the conversation didn't go in that route. Right, right. And that's something that's also really interesting about podcasting in general is that, that the kind of separates from normal media. I, I don't remember where I heard this from. It might have been a, a, a podcasting panel at a, a, a marketing conference I was at. But um, I think they were saying that what makes it really different and unique is the fact that these interviews and these uh, conversations are taking place between peers, not a newscaster who has n very little knowledge of whatever industry this niche podcast, this podcast is focused on. Let's just say it is design. It's a designer speaking to another designer. And because of that, you already have sort of an edge. It's more of a realistic conversation. It's more conversational in general. And that's a great point, too, is is sort of just knowing the industry that you're you're focused in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd say the the second thing that I think you need to be a good host is knowing your voice. And I mean, like your your literal voice. Yeah. There, there's a lot of people I know who don't like to do podcasts because they don't like the sound of their own voice. That's often sort of a common kind of, uh, I guess, critique that I hear from sure. guests is like, oh, I didn't listen to the interview because I don't like how my voice sounds <laughs> and and all that sort of stuff. Well, and I'm going I'm going on record to say right now, I hate the sound of my own voice, but <laughs> I, you know, I'm still doing this thing. So, but uh, yeah, that's a common thing. Most people I talk to do not like the sound of their voice. But I mean, I think it's something where, especially if you're a podcaster, you have to be aware of your voice because that is your instrument in order to make this actually happen. If you're not in the mic talking, then you're you're kind of useless. You know, yeah. it's not a podcast if you're not the one hosting it. And so when I say know your voice, it's not just necessarily being comfortable with the sound of it, but also knowing how to modulate your voice in order to hit certain emotional cues or peaks or ties that you want to make within the interview. So one thing that I'll tell my guests is when they're speaking, like, don't try to edit yourself, just talk. Yeah. Because we can always take stuff out. Yeah. We can't put stuff back in. <laughs> um, so talk as much as you want. We can always try to edit things for clarity. But I will often use silence as a way to tease more out of a guest. So if they give a response, I won't respond right away. I'll just let it linger for about a second or two and then come in with my question. And then how I give that question, the tone of my voice will depend on where it goes from there. If it sounds more jovial and upbeat, then maybe I'm being more comedic. But then if I sort of bring it down and make it slow, something like that, yeah. then it becomes more serious. There's more gravity to it. So I think knowing 
how to modulate your voice in order to hit those kind of cues is really important, especially because my show doesn't have any music. Like my show <laughs> is not a super produced, like NPR level show that's right. got, you know, a music bed running underneath the conversations. It's just me and the guests. So that's for 45 minutes to an hour or more. We're just talking. So I have to make it so it feels like a conversation and conversations between friends or between peers tend to have those kinds of modulations. And so it also, I think, puts the guest at ease because now they know, okay, this is kind of a more intimate thing. It's not just like, you know, we're not in a studio. Well, sometimes we are in a studio, but we're not <laughs> in a studio sitting across from each other, right. you know, kind of giving an interview in that way. It's much more of like a talk between friends or a talk between peers. So knowing how your voice works, how to modulate it, I think is super important because that will help you out in advancing conversations or even shutting things down just based on how it how it approaches in the conversation. But it's one of those things that is a it's practice makes perfect. Yeah. You can't really teach that comes with experience. It comes with experience. You have to know your voice. You have to know kind of what your guests are about. And I think you also have to know your audience to kind of know what's going to work, what's not going to work. My audience knows me as a host to be pretty laid back and jovial. So I can go there sometimes with guests on interviews that other hosts wouldn't. Right. Because I, I'm able to just kind of tap into that largely through my voice. Yeah. Uh, the third thing I would say, so we talked about preparation. We talked about voice. Yep. I think it's also important just to make sure that, and this I think will also just depend on the structure of your show, but keep the focus on the guest and not on yourself. Yep. There are a lot of, and I'm not naming names here, but there are a <laughs> lot of personality driven podcasts where it's very clear that the host wants to be the star Yep. and the guest is just along for the ride. <laughs> They're just in the passenger seat. Now, Granted, my show is, it's an interview show. So when I'm talking with the person, I try to put the guest as the focus. Like, it's not about me. I'm on every episode. So I'm I'm sort of by default the star. So I try not to interject into a lot of conversations. I will tell the guest, you know, you can ask me questions as well, because then it sort of becomes like a, you know, just a bit more of a, a conversation in that way. Yeah. Uh, but I'll use sometimes my own anecdotes as segues into other topics, but I try to make it so it's not about me. Like it's not the Maurice Cherry show featuring whoever the guest is. Right. I put the focus on the guest because that's who the listener is tuning in to hear from. They want to hear from who I'm talking to. They don't necessarily want to hear from me. I'm just holding the microphone for the guest. Um, and so I think that's one way to be a good host is to realize that as you said, you're sort of that audience conduit. Yeah. So I try really not to make the show all about myself. Even in the marketing of the show, I don't make it about me. I make it about the guest. I say that Revision Path uh, is a weekly showcase of the world's best uh, black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. And then I'm like at the end, like hosted by Maurice Cherry. Right. Like, it's, <laughs> like I feel like, and not to say that this will happen, but it's one of those things where I've set it up where I think someone else could step in and host. Sure. And it could still be the same because the focus is not about the host. The focus is about the guests. That's a great lesson. I love that. So now with the, we take these three lessons uh, of, you know, uh, what it really takes to become a great podcast host. Now, you know, as, as we're working, as, as people are working on these things, how are they supposed to find guests to bring on the show to feature? We're talking about featuring guests. How do you go about sort of sourcing guests? And I mean, you've been, again, you've been doing this a long time. This is a weekly show, week in and week out. How are you continually finding new guests for your show that you know are going to be valuable to your listeners? You know, and when I when I say sourcing guests, I mean also you know vetting them out. You don't want you don't mm -hmm. want somebody on there that doesn't is not a good fit. So how do you go about doing that whole process? So I actually use LinkedIn a lot to find guests. Uh, people are often surprised about that, but I'm I'm a big LinkedIn user. I've got my premium account. I use that a lot to find people, and often that's because designers will have you know their resume there. And then I can look at their connections, see who else they might know. I can search by company. If I'm looking to interview someone from a particular company, if I'm looking to interview someone for a particular type of designer, I can search for that and find it. LinkedIn has been an indispensable resource uh, for me to find guests. That's one way. 
Uh, the other way is actually from guests that have been on the show is to just get like a warm referral. So I'll interview someone. And then at the end, after we stop recording, I'll ask them if they know anyone else who would be good. You know, I'd love an introduction. Sometimes I get an introduction. Sometimes I don't. It just depends. But in that respect, I've gotten a lot of guests just from that kind of warm referral, you know, friend of a friend, employee, colleague, et cetera. Word of mouth. Um, and then the third way people do actually just write in, I think, because the show has been around this long, people will write in and recommend themselves. Those are often the ones that I don't pick. And mm -hmm. it's not because they've written in. It's because they often have something they want to plug. Sure. And my show is not a pluggy show like that. Right, right. Partially because we record way in advance <laughs> so like it's a weekly show like you, you and i were talking we're having this conversation now i'm already done with recordings for the year oh that's fantastic i'm already fantastic. in january 2020 that, so that's fantastic so someone will come and say they want to you know market something and i'm like it's it's probably not going to air for three more months are you okay with that <laughs> uh and oftentimes they're not because they figure they can just hop right on and be able to do the show and i'm like no i've i'm booked we're good uh, but oftentimes also those people just aren't the right fit for the show. So if I'm speaking to designers, digital creatives, developers, if someone comes on and they're a marketer, I'm like, eh, it's probably not a good fit. <laughs> or if they come on and they're, I, I get a lot of um, CEOs of companies that want to come on the show. And that's not to say that you can't be a CEO or a designer and come on the show because we've had those on there before. We've had entrepreneurs on the show, but it's often just not a good fit. Maybe they've seen the show in some podcast directory somewhere or something, and they just figured they would give it a shot. And it's like, eh, no, because oftentimes I know whenever those people have written in, I know that they haven't listened to the show. They don't know what the show is about. They don't know who the show is catered towards. They don't know who the show is really sort of trying to reach. They just want to come on and plug their business, their book, their whatever. And I'm like, yeah, probably not a good fit. Um, so because I've done it for this long, I tend to be pretty good about sussing out who I think would make a good guest just based on what there's just kind of based on what their story is about. Like I do a little cursory research just to see, OK, this is what this person about. This is what they're doing. We can we can find a way to pull a story out of this. So most of the time, uh, that's how I'm finding guests is through those three methods. Right now, we've got a long, not really a waiting list, but I have a list really a database I can pull from of about 2000 plus names of designers from all over the world that I've just, I can go through at random. I can pick a name out. I can do a search. I can see what they're working on and I can see if this is a good person to have on the show or not. And because I'm doing it so far in advance, that also means that I can make sure that I'm hit. I have my own sort of personal diversity that I weave into this. So I'm always making sure that I try to get gender parity as close to 50-50 as possible. Yep. Um, if I feel like I'm interviewing too many dudes, I'll just interview women for a few months. Like <laughs> I'll try to see how I can even it out. Yep. I, I try to make sure that geographically it's pretty diverse. I mean, we do talk to people in the U.S., but we've talked to people throughout the Caribbean, throughout Europe, throughout Africa, in Asia, in Australia. I try to vary based on just their career level. I try to vary based on age. I try to vary based on a number of different things. And so if I'm doing it far enough in advance, I can hit those certain, just uh, not to say that I have these written down in stone, Yeah. but it's more something that I'm doing to make sure that I'm keeping it, you know, like I said, keeping it lively, keeping it fresh, and also making sure in some cases to sort of tie it into current events. So I'll give you an example. In 2016, this is right before uh, Trump was elected. Um, we had interviews that were sort of leading up to that that we had already done. And then I recorded this interview with this uh, young lady named Maya Gold. Well, she was Maya Patterson at the time. And we just sort of tossed it in as a bonus episode because we spoke, I think, two or three days after the election. And so just emotions were running high and yep. it was a good interview. And I didn't want to sit on it for a month. I was like, we'll just put it out as a bonus. And then... Later on that year, I did a, actually did a two-part episode with a, a designer in Amsterdam. And the first interview was about, okay, he's from the States and he immigrated to, to Amsterdam and he's there with his family. But then the second interview was, and we saved that one for the end of the year just because of sort of the gravity of how the, the show ended up being. And it was more about, do you feel like America's a country that you can come back home to now? 
And so we spoke about that from like a job level, from a personal level, from a safety level. And it ended up being one of our most popular episodes. Yeah, that's great. Being able to have that kind of preparation and distance for guests has really helped out for me to carve out themes and for me to carve out you know, diversity was in the show. I, if if anyone listens to Revision Path for any length of time, they can definitely say that it is not the same thing. I try to get a different perspective, a different vibe, a different type of designer in every single episode. I try to make sure that it's as varied as, as I can. Now, how long did it take you to get to the point where you had this backlog of interviews that you have this now freedom to kind of come up with your own schedule and play around with your own schedule and, you know, release the episodes in sort of any manner that you want. How long did that take you? Oh, wow. That's a good question. (laughs) So when we, so when we officially launched in March of 2014, we had 15 episodes on backlog. um, And we just released those all at once. I was just like, here's a vision path. Boom. 15 episodes. Go Go binge it. it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think we finally got around to the point where we, had enough time to sort of have that buffer probably after the first or second year of doing it. Because what I'll tell the guests before we record is when it's going to air. And so I'll make sure that as we're talking or whatever, that they're sort of talking in like this sort of ersatz future tense, because by the time the episode comes out, then whatever the thing they're talking about is what it will relate to. But I think it took us about a year to get there. And honestly, that also came with just building our booking system and getting that underway. Because I think as anyone knows, when it comes to booking guests, like it can be a lot of back and forth with emails and this and that. And that can make it a lot harder just to make sure you're getting your show out on a regular cadence. Once we had a really good automated system in play, that made it a lot easier because then we could just send out a link Yeah. And then people could fill out everything in that link and then we get everything that we need to go ahead and get started with the interview. We've got them booked. We've got their photo. We've got their bio. We've got their Skype name. We've got their social media accounts. We're ready to go. And I try to make it so now and it's I think it's been this way for a long time, but I make it now. So when I talk to the guests, that's the last step in the process. Yeah. Like I'll send the audio off to my editor And we're good to go until the week that the episode comes out, you know, then I'll write the show notes and the editor will produce the episode. But we try not to ask for anything else from the guests after we've talked to them. Like, I want that to be the final step because it's already going to be a challenge to get in touch with them to make sure that they agree to come on the show. I don't want to have to follow up later for things that I might need. I want to make sure that's the last step for them. Yeah, that's great. And it seems that I mean, when you guys started, you said you, you started with 15 episodes on backlog, you released them all at once. So uh, that, you tacked this from a very strategic and intelligent way. Um, how, how did you figure that out? Was that did you do reading? Did you have some sort of podcasting mentor that helped you and gave you some advice on that? It just seems <laughs> like uh, that was a very wise decision that I don't actually see often. So that, that's mm-hmm. great. How did uh, how did that come about? So we're going to get we're going to get really real here because <laughs> there there were no I'm not going to say there were no podcasting mentors uh back then because there were. I mean, you certainly had the yeah, John Lee Dumas, you had Daniel Lewis, you had people that were out there Pat Flynn, et cetera, that were doing all this stuff. Right. Um and I was a member for a short period of time of uh Podcasters Paradise, which is like this paid service or like this paid community right. that uh, John Lee Dumas has where you can join and you can meet other podcasters. And the thing was that I already knew how to make a podcast. So I wasn't joining for the like technical knowledge. I was hoping that I could get like connected with other podcasters in sure. terms of being guests on a show or something like that. And what I quickly found out, and I mean really quickly, is that if you're black doing this, the cards are already stacked against you. Like there's, no, there's <laughs> nobody that's going to want to help you out. Um, and I think also the genre that my show was in was not something that a lot of people were really interested in. Right. Like when I was in the podcasters paradise thing, there were like parenting shows and there were so many business and entrepreneurship and marketing shows, like ugh, so many of those <laughs> kind of shows. And uh, sports and just things that had nothing to do with art and design. Like there were hundreds of members in Podcasters Paradise. I was the only one that was doing art and design. Wow. I was like, this is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. So I didn't get a ton of value out of that in terms of being able to network and sort of be on other shows. 
um, in 2015, I was actually even reaching out to other design podcasters. Well, one, as a way to kind of just, you know, break bread and say, hey, we're kind of doing the same thing, but also to say, hey, if there are guests that you're looking for for your show, I can recommend someone I've had on my show, like, you know, kind of not a not necessarily a guest swap, but more like just as a resource. Right. If you're looking for more diversity, I'm talking to black designers, I can help you out. And no one was interested. Wow. Not a single person. The one show that I reached out to that actually showed some interest and actually even had me on their show twice was uh, this show called On the Grid, which was put on by these three guys, Andy Mangold, Matt McInerney, and Dan Auer. It was on the 5 by 5 network. Very popular design show. Cool. And I was on there twice. And they were, they were the only pod design podcast I reached out to that really would give me the time of day. Hmm. Most of the others would not respond back, or if they did respond back, it was uh, very negatively and I mean, even in the early days of Revision Path, a lot of people just looked at it on its face and was like, oh, this is racist. Oh, you're only <laughs> talking to black people? Oh, this is racist. I don't, I don't, we don't, we don't deal with race. We don't do that. This is about design. And I'm right, like, well, right. I mean, so is my show. They just happen to be black. Right, What's the problem, right. you know? Uh, so I didn't get really any kind of help in those early days. A lot of it was me kind of making the road by walking. Um, and I, I did my my due diligence in going to events and like attending webinars, like putting myself out there in the podcasting space so people could see that I was someone who was doing this. Sure. And I think the tide turned a little bit in, it was in 2016, uh, we got Facebook as a sponsor. And that was pretty major because Facebook wasn't sponsoring podcasts. Right, right. Like like getting sponsors, we had... uh, in the duration of the show, we've had some pretty big sponsors, MailChimp, Google, I mentioned uh, Facebook, uh, Creative Market, Hover, like a lot of sort of design focused companies or, or companies that focus on the design and tech industry. That's when the show, I think, started to get noticed in the podcasting industry because I was getting these sponsors that wasn't that they weren't the, I would say, kind of sponsors that you would see on, you know, kind of network shows like it wasn't a Squarespace or a Casper or Blue Apron or HelloFresh or whatever. Right. Like these were big tech names that were like, hey, we really like what you're doing. Here's some money. Yeah. Keep doing it, you know. And really, I was appealing to them on the value of the show. And that's what they bought into. I I say all that to say those early days in podcasting, there was really no help. Yep. I was seeking community. I was going into the places where I thought community was. And I was quickly finding that the community was not open to me. And I would even say now, you know, we're, we're recording this in 2019. It's kind of still the same way. Yep. I'm, I'm finding that now the conversation is more around diversity in podcasting and making sure that people of color are part of the mix. And I have to applaud Simplecast, who happens to be my audio host, for being kind of one of the, the companies that is really getting behind this in a positive way. They do events, they do webinars, they really make sure that podcasters of color are part of the podcasting landscape. I can't say that for really, uh, I'd say probably any other podcasting company out there. You look across the spectrum, it's pretty much an Arctic tundra. Yeah. So (laughs) I I have to give it to Simplecast for that. But even now in 2019, I still feel that there is a definite split between, and I'm using air quotes here, podcasters and people of color who happen to be podcasts, I still feel like there's a big split. Yeah, that's unfor- it's definitely unfortunate. Hopefully we're, we're taking strides forward here, Simplecast being uh, a good example there. So, But yeah, I'll tell you what, it, it, despite all of that, your story is a great story on how you, I think you, you said you had to walk the path or, or I, I can't remember how you actually phrased it, but you had to build it from the ground up from yourself. That's incredibly respectable and, and admirable. So you, you definitely have my respect for sure. So with all of this in mind, you've been hosting the podcast by yourself, solo, doing these interviews. You know, I have people coming to me asking, you know, I'm thinking about bringing on a, a co-host. I don't know if I'll be entertaining enough to kind of carry the load myself on these podcast episodes. Now, I know you don't have any experience with a co-host, but with all the experience you do have in podcasting in general, when would you say it's a good time to consider a co-host or do you, you think that it's not necessary? Do you think that there's any specific examples where, yeah, you know what, I might recommend you, you uh, pick up a co-host for this sort of show? Mm. That's a good question. 
So there are a lot of different types of shows that are out there. There's interview-based shows. There are sort of very well-produced shows where you've got a host with guests around a specific topic. There's audio fiction, et cetera. So there's a lot of different types of shows. I For shows that I've listened to that have co-hosts, I think the thing that has come across for me is that these people already have sort of a natural chemistry together. And so that chemistry comes across on the mic, and that's not something that can be faked. Usually these people are already friends in real life or they're, you know, acquaintances, associates. Like, I think the worst thing that you can hear from a podcast is two co-hosts that are just getting to know each other. (laughs) It makes for awkward, stilted conversation. And then you're like, why am I listening to this? It doesn't make any sense. I would say for people that are considering a co-host to really look at the reasons why. Are you, do you want a co-host to sort of share the load? Do you want a co-host because they're going to complement certain weaknesses that you may have or augment certain strengths that you have. What are you really gaining by having a co-host? Because when it comes to the production end, like that's another audio source now that you have to sort of work with. And if you're not already in the same physical location with that person, you know, syncing up multiple tracks of audio, I mean, you know this, syncing up multiple tracks of audio, if that's not something that you're familiar with or you don't have an editor that already does it, it's not easy. Yep. So Think about also just kind of like the added sort of production cost that would come on to having another co-host. I don't think it's a bad idea to shoot pilots or to, to record pilots, I guess. The way now that I think podcasting is going, and this is largely based on what you see, not just from larger media entities, but also from production houses like a Gimlet or a Pineapple Street or Wondery, et cetera, yep. are shows that launch with seasons. And so they're sort of taking this television model into play where you've got pilots and then you will air a show and a show a show will only go for a certain number of episodes and sometimes they'll tease it out every week sometimes they will put it out all at once just like tv shows same sure. sort of way so i think if you look at it in that kind of way you can do a lot of experimentation with whether or not you decide to to have a host or to decide to have a co-host i should say but really look at what you think it's going to add to the show because aside from just you thinking oh i'll have someone else to talk to i mean yeah that's that's great but do people want to hear that like do people really want to listen to that is your idea that enthralling that they want to hear two people hear about it these are all things that you have to really sort of take into consideration now because there are so many podcasts out there and it's so hard especially starting out as an indie podcaster to really make it into a place where people are gonna listen like it's it's extremely tough now (laughs) you're gonna have to you gotta break through they just released uh new data 700 million podcast series on apple podcast that that's that's your competition that's what you have to break through and i mean a a lot of that also depends on what it is that you want to talk about i so i'm in atlanta and atlanta is known for its entertainment so i always hear from like people that want to start a show about like the entertainment industry they want to talk about celebrity gossip because them and their friend really like to talk and i'm like who wants to listen to that there are (laughs) there are a dozen shows out there that are already doing this and successful what is the special thing that you and your homegirl are bringing to the mic that i can't hear from anybody else right is it a personality thing are you industry insiders like what is the extra something that is going to make me want to listen to you over someone else one podcast that I did, and, and this is something that uh, <laughs> we didn't, I don't know if you caught this in your research, but in 2015, I did a daily podcast called The Year of Tea. So I really like tea, like the tea that you drink. Um, <laughs> and I have, or at the time, I had a really large collection, like way too large for the cabinet that I had it in. And I was sort of challenging myself to do something more creatively, honestly, because I was frustrated with Revision Path. This was around the time where I was doing that outreach to other communities and not really hearing anything back. Right. And so I wanted to do something different where I could push myself in a different sort of way creatively and in turn also hone my skills for revision path. So I started a daily podcast in 2015 called The Year of Tea, where I reviewed a different tea every day for a whole year. Wow. They were short episodes. They were like five minutes or less. The premise is that you'll learn about a new tea in the time it takes you to brew a fresh cup. And I reviewed loose leaf teas, bag teas, bottle teas, kombucha. I mean, you name it, everything kind of tea related. And 
that was a way for me to kind of push myself in another way, sort of audio wise, because now I have to make this super tight show. So I have to like get to the point, say what I have to say and get out. Cause I, right. I didn't want it to be a really long episode. Cause a lot of T media is very boring. And, and it, and is there other T media out there? There are other T podcasts out yeah. there, but they are not, they're not good. Like they're okay. long. They're, they're needlessly long. T is right. not that. I mean, it's the second most drank beverage in the world, but tea right. is not, it doesn't, there's like this weird air of mysticism that gets put around tea. And I'm just like, we can, we can debunk that. Like Six, 60 minutes is a bit much for tea, I think. Five. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> if I can, if I can get you in and out in five minutes and try something new, let's do that. So right, right. I, I kind of did this daily podcast and it was amazing how much that caught on because tea companies heard it and then sent me more tea. Wow. So I I would get teas from companies. I'd take a picture, I put it on Instagram, and then I would review the teas on the show. And that was just a way for me to try to get out there and do something different. I could not have done that with a co-host. Right. I couldn't have done that with a co-host. Like I had to do that kind of myself to kind of really get more comfortable with my voice on the mic. One. And I think two, to also just sort of build that muscle for doing this on a regular basis. You know, we finished the show at the end of 2015. People really wanted to know if there would be a second year of tea. I said, no, there's not. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to try to do this again. Because also at this time, Revision Path was starting to sort of uh, take off. So I had the time to do two shows, you know, one daily, one weekly. And uh, well, I think I think what's what's interesting there is you're talking about you wouldn't be able to do it with a co-host. It's a daily show. So that's one thing to consider there. If you're doing this on a daily basis, you have somebody else's schedule to consider. So yeah. are they going to be available on a daily basis to record? So if there are other podcasters out there that are doing a weekly show, which is the typical, I would say, most common scheduling of, of podcast shows, if you're doing a weekly show and you, you want to bring on a co-host, that's something to consider. Are they going to be around every week to record? They need to be committed just as much as you are. And what I think you've been alluding to is this cost benefit factor. So is the co-host going to bring enough value to the show, to your listeners that will offset the cost associated with it, whether it's you know, scheduling headaches and making sure that they're around to record the extra audio and syncing the audio up correctly and more editing time and things like that. So yeah. that's all great insights there for, for people that are considering a co-host. Now, regardless of the co-host, do you feel, again, in your experience, do you feel that anybody can be a podcast host and not just a podcast host, let's say a an engaging podcast host, a great podcast host? Is that something that anybody can work on and become with experience and over time? Or is it something that, you know, you just got it and and you're meant to do this and, and you know, that's it? I think anyone can because it's a combination of things that a host brings to the mic. You know, they're not just bringing their actual voice to the mic. They're bringing their experience. They're bringing their enthusiasm. They're bringing a lot of other things to the mic than just, you know, being able to sit down and talk. So I think depending on the subject matter really of the show and the type of show that it is, I do think anyone can be a host because there's something that we're all very passionate about that we can talk about at length. And that's pretty much what podcasts are. Sort yeah. of. <laughs> so I, I do think anyone can be a great podcast host if they are um, attuned to the right material that is for them. For sure. Yeah. Would you say that, you know, jumping in and just doing it uh, and the experience that you get will foster a better podcast host, essentially? I mean, it's certainly one of those things where practice makes perfect. I mean, I went through a number of different microphones. I went through a number of different types of setups just to get what I thought I would be the most comfortable with, which is sort of where I am now. I mean, I didn't know that at the beginning. I I had no clue. I certainly knew what I wanted to do. I knew where I wanted to be. I knew how I wanted to get there. But it took a lot of time to really sort of polish that into something that was presentable for people. And one thing that is interesting with podcasting, especially if you do a lot of networking, like people will tell you if your show sucks, yeah. like, <laughs> like they will leave a bad review. They will. The feedback can be swift, I think, if your show is bad. Right. Uh, you will definitely hear that. So it helps, I think, to just also get those outside opinions, not necessarily iTunes reviews, but, you know, have your peers listen, have other folks listen. Like, I think it's something where, you know, podcast hosting 
is it feels like something that if you're a working professional, inevitably you are going to be drawn into in some way, whether it's just listening to a host or being asked to be on a podcast or, or anything like that. Uh, that's just sort of the way that the media market is going right now. Yeah. Um, but I, I think anyone can be a great host. It's really something that you have to to work at. It's something that if you're passionate about whatever the topic is, you certainly can can use that to your benefit. Yeah, that's fantastic. And uh, this has all been you know, really great insights. Anybody that's looking to jump into podcasting uh, can really take away a great deal of, uh, of knowledge from you. I do. Uh, we do have to wrap things up, but I do have a few follow-up questions here okay. for you. And I just want to take you back to day one of the podcast. And I, I want you to go back to when you were first starting out, what is, let's say, one thing, one or two things that you would do differently if you were to start Revision Path all over again? What are, what are some things that if new podcasters are jumping in and trying to do this, what are some of the things they should look out for? Any recommendations, things like that? Oh, wow. There's so many things. Uh, <laughs> I think the very first thing is I would do seasons. Uh, okay. I, I, I got locked into the weekly <laughs> I got locked into the <laughs> weekly show format, uh, which is so interesting because now the show is part of a network and they're asking about seasons. And I'm like, yeah, Revision Path doesn't have seasons. We just go all year. They're like, oh, so is so when does the first season end? I was like, there's no, it's, we just keep going. It's a perpetual um, season. <laughs> I would definitely do seasons because I think that helps pace the listener. But also if this is not something that you're you're accustomed to, it also helps pace the podcaster. So I would do seasons. That's probably the first thing. Okay. Uh, the second thing I would do, I would work harder in the beginning on establishing a system for booking guests for recording. Like I would make sure all of that is airtight. There was a lot of, of uh, me just kind of trying what I thought would work in the early days. I mean, part of it I think was because a lot of the early podcasting tools were focused on Macs and not on windows and so with yep. Windows, there you kind of had to just take what take what you could get, essentially. <laughs> and so there was a lot of trial and error and guessing on what was going to work, what wasn't going to work. There would often be times I would record a whole interview, or I would do a whole a whole interview and it wouldn't record, and it's like, oh, we have to do this again, or yep. we have to record it a third time, or something like that. I would work really hard on getting my booking system and everything down pat first. Because I, I think I spent a lot of time in the beginning just trying to make it week by week, like just got to get to the finish line. Whereas now I've got a system that's automated to the point where I can, like I said, I can send out a link. People go to that link. It's sort of like a virtual green room in a way. Yeah. Uh, but there's links on there about pre-interview tips, uh, microphones. Uh, there's also links about just how to prep like drink some water, turn off your cell phone, <laughs> like all those sorts of things. For sure. Um, but then also there's ways to get the information I need in order to get what I need to like make promo graphics or to write the show notes or stuff like that. Or even just to do my preliminary research before I talk to the guest. I don't want to show up empty handed and I want them to be excited about the experience. And I think, especially for guests that have not been on a lot of podcasts, it helps put them at ease when the host is prepared. Yeah. Like when yeah. you show up and you know what you're doing, they're like, okay, I got you. They can relax now. And, yeah, and they can, you they take can relax. So I would definitely spend time on, on getting those systems together. And lastly, I would honestly say like, try to find the community that works for your audience, not necessarily the podcasting community. And I hate to give that as a, as a recommendation. I mean, podcasters are, are wonderful, lovely people. I'm not saying this to say that you shouldn't know other podcasters. But other podcasters are not necessarily going to listen to your show because we're all interested in different things like cater to your audience. There's so many people I know that do podcasting that are like rushing to try to get new audience listeners and not catering to the audience that they already have. Like be in the places where your audience is going to be. Try to get sponsors for the things that your audience is interested in, like cater to them and make them rabid fans of your show. That's something that I would probably do differently. Cause in those early days, I really was just trying to chase what other people were doing and trying to see if there's a way that I could piggyback off of that success in order to catapult what I was doing. And once I sort of got in my mind, I need to stay in my own lane and just do my thing. That's when the show really started to take off. That's beautiful. I love that. And it comes back to what I always say, which is 
know your audience each step of the way, no matter what you're doing, always think about, is this, is this something that's going to be valuable for my audience? Mm-hmm. Um, after all, you, you know, your success is their success and, and they're the ones that are sort of propping you up. So that's fantastic. Um, now let's shift gears here. I want to talk about what it is about podcasting that made you fall in love with it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be on the production end of things and, and you actually hosting and being a podcaster. It could also be as a listener. What is it about the podcasting format as, as media that you just love that compelled you to jump into being one yourself? I mean, podcasting is a very just intimate medium in and of itself. It's you and a microphone. You're often in a room that's padded. Like it's, it can be a very solitary sort of thing. So I like that aspect of it in that it, it makes sure that you're focusing on yourself. As a listener, I just like that it's intimate because you get to hear all of these different stories and they are unfiltered. They're from all kinds of different perspectives. Um, I mean, just today I was going through my my podcatcher and I was adding new shows because I, you know, I'll trade shows out here and there just to see kind of what's out there and stuff. Sure. And I, you know, I'm, I'm adding new shows because I want to hear from certain you know, certain communities. I want to hear certain perspectives on things or like I might be interested in in cooking, for example. Yeah. And like I like to watch America's Test Kitchen. America's Test Kitchen has a podcast. Didn't know that. Now they have a <laughs> podcast. And now I'm listening to it. And so you get to know kind of more about these different types of uh, subject matters that you're interested in in a very intimate and personal way. You can listen to it anywhere you can be in the car, in bed, on a plane, etc. I really like that kind of intimate one-on-oneness that podcasts uh, can really bring you. That's what I really like about it. And I would say out of, you know, the other media forms that are out there, it's probably the least regulated, I would say. Yeah, that's that's fair. I yep. mean, YouTubers are getting demonetized. You know, television shows have standards and practices. Like, you can say whatever you want on a podcast. Yeah. And, <laughs> and unless, I guess, maybe you're part of a network or something, you can kind of get away with it. Um now, granted, I mean, audio hosts do have they do have their own terms and conditions and stuff, but largely you can say what you want. You can have a show on anything. One of my favorite shows, and I wish it was still going on, uh, was a show called Bayside High and Drunk. OK, and it was basically two guys. One was high. One would be high. One would be drunk. <laughs> and they would review old episodes of Saved by the Bell. And it was hilarious because. Saved by the Bell is kind of a trash show. I mean, yeah, when yeah. I look back on it in <laughs> retrospect, like Zach Morris was a creep. Like it was, yep. it was kind of a trash show. <laughs> and it like to, to view it back through that lens of nostalgia, but also intoxication is like hilarious. Like what, what channel am I going to watch that on? Maybe Vice, yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. you have to run that by a, a studio exec and they have to think if that's a good idea. Whereas with a podcast, you and your right. friend can sit down, record it and put it out there in the world with no gatekeepers. Right. And so right. that's still, I think, a very um, exciting thing for a lot of podcasters that they're they're able to do this and no one can tell them no. They can just yeah. say what they want and put it out there and it's out there. And anyone can listen to it or not listen to it. But the fact is that no one is stopping you from saying it and distributing it. So what is coming up next for you? You got uh, Revision Path Podcast. Is there anything cool on the horizon that you're super excited about that you just can't keep in and you got to... You got to let it off the chest now. Oh, wow. Exclu- so, exclusive on the, the podcast <laughs> insider. <laughs> so the week that we're recording this, I'll be giving my last talk of the year. Um, I'll be in Bowling Green, Ohio, giving an artist talk at Bowling Green State University. So that should be pretty cool. I'm giving very cool a presentation that um, I've never given before. I've given like versions of this presentation before, but this one is going to be more uh, probably personal and intimate than any other talk that I've done. I generally tend not to do conference talks, but that's a whole other a whole other podcast. Okay. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see how the crowd there sort of takes it. I just published a literary anthology called uh, Recognize. I did that in conjunction with Envision, which is a, a design company. Yep. And that's something where we were showcasing design commentary from designers of color, indigenous designers, et cetera. So I'm sort of working on what, that's going to look like for 2020 for the second volume. It's kind of just in the planning stages right now. Nothing is concrete, uh, but I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Revision Path will be turning seven 
Unbelievable, in February man. 2020. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, another thing that we do with Revision Path, we sort of have a sister site called 28 Days of the Web. And we do that in conjunction with Black History Month, where we recognize a different Black designer developer for every day in the month. So it's 28 days, 14 men, 14 women. On leap years, which 2020 will be a leap year, we add in an extra person. So that will also be coming up in February, and that's a daily thing, so people can check that out. Other than that, I mean, you know, we just had our 300th episode back in June. Uh, we did a live event in New York City. That was really cool. That's I cool. Hoped, I hope to do more live events in 2020. I'm, I'm like crossing my fingers here because nothing is, is on the calendar yet. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Oh, I guess by the time this airs, I will be possibly doing an event in L.A. with Revision Path in February of 2020. It's in the planning stages right now. It'll probably be sometime around mid-February. Okay. Uh, so that I'll, I'll have more information on that the closer we get to it. But I'm already sort of looking outward at the future and trying to see what things I can be a part of, see where I can take Revision Path. I mean... The fact that now it's in the Smithsonian is a huge honor, and that's opened many doors for me that haven't been opened before because of the show. And so I'll be looking to see how I explore that, whether it's writing a book or branching out on a different show. I'm not really sure. I mean, the future is now, literally. I mean, yeah. what's more future than 2020, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have these sorts of things planned that I just mentioned to you. But other than that, I mean, the sky's the limit. Yeah, beautiful. Now, where can listeners find you? They want to get in touch with you. They want to check out Revision Path. They want to know when your live events are happening. How can they get in contact with you and how can they subscribe to your show? Uh, The best way to do that is actually through Twitter. They can go to twitter.com slash revision path. That's where they'll find the latest episodes. Uh, We're on the Glitch Media Network. So you can find us at glitch.com forward slash revision path. You can also find us at just revisionpath.com, but it's a bit of a split between episodes. It's a long story, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook as Revision Path. We're on Instagram as well. Those are probably the best ways to get in touch uh, with the show. And then 28 Days of the Web is literally 28daysoftheweb.com. It's also 28 Days of the Web on, on Twitter as well. So you can find it there. And then for me personally, I'm at mauricecherry.com. I'm on Twitter as at Maurice Cherry, and you can reach out to me there as well. Awesome. Uh, Maurice, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a real treat. Thank you. You got it, man. And there you have it, Maurice Cherry. Uh, Really great interview. Uh, Very good guest (laughs) on the topic of great guest. He was a really good guest. And he brought a ton of value, I I thought. So uh, I hope you guys are able to walk away from this episode with a couple of key things to think about. Uh, On your next podcast recording, some things to keep top of mind uh, while you're recording or interviewing your next guest. He just had a ton of insights to bring to the table. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. But before we go, just a couple of things. If you're enjoying the podcast, uh, be sure to subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on uh, Pocket Cast, Stitcher. Wherever you uh, listen to your podcast, you can find us. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow us on Twitter so that we can start some conversations here uh, at Devenio Podcast, at Devenio, D-E-V-E-N-I-O, podcasts, plural. You can hit us up there and uh, let's start a conversation about podcasting. Let us know some of the challenges you guys are facing and what you want to hear and who you want to hear from uh, on this podcast. And hey, if you have a podcast of your own and you feel like you could bring some value to the other listeners who uh, are, are trying to produce better podcasts, then hit us up as well and let us know. We'd love to have you on the show. And lastly, if you're loving the podcast so far, be sure to head over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and give us a rating. Peer reviews can be super powerful and it'll just help other podcasters find the show. So thank you in advance and I'm looking forward to connecting with some of you. Until next time, happy podcasting. Podcasting.